Earth the center of the universe, or does it orbit around the Sun? The Greeks had some interesting ideas about this. For example, the Earth is basically just a big rock, right? Uh, well, have you ever seen a rock just hovering in empty space without being supported by anything? Uh, of course not, that would be crazy. Uh, on the other hand, you think of a rock in a sling, like a slingshot, the, the ancient weapon, like uh, David used against Goliath, for example. So the rock is at the end of a string, and you're whirling it about in a, in a circle. In that way, you can, in fact, keep a heavy rock suspended in the air indefinitely, without there being any ground or support on, on which the, the rock is resting. So this is a powerful argument in favor of the hypothesis that the Earth revolves around the Sun. And Obviously, that requires, then, that the Sun, on the other hand, is, in fact, hovering in empty space, sitting in the middle uh, in rest. So aren't we just back to square one, then, with the same problem we started with? No, not at all. The Sun is made of fire, isn't it? Fire has no problem levitating. It's a weightless substance, as, as we all know. Just light a match and see how the flame uh, rises completely unencumbered by gravity. You can feel yourself how... No weight was added to the match, even though the flame has considerable volume. So, on the basis of this, we can conclude that the Earth moves around the Sun. Because that agrees much better with everyday physical experience than the outlandish hypothesis that a massive chunk of rock is just sitting there in nothingness uh, without falling. As you may know, this is not the official Greek position, so to speak. It's not Aristotle's opinion, it's not Ptolemy's opinion. Uh, those are the main authorities uh, that have come down to us on these issues, Aristotle the philosopher, Ptolemy the astronomer, and these guys are usually taken to express the party line, as it were, of the Greeks. And uh, these two uh, figures did indeed put the Earth at the center of the universe, but I would like to do some revisionist history here and speak for the underdogs of Greek cosmology. Those guys had some good ideas. Now, unfortunately, their works are lost, you know, we only have some scraps to go by. But uh, the indications we have are very intriguing. In fact, this idea that I just described, that, uh, that it's unrealistic for a heavy rock to simply levitate in empty space, uh, this idea is mentioned by Ptolemy himself. Now, Ptolemy, of course, brings it up only in order to dismiss the idea. But actually, more interesting than Ptolemy's counter-arguments is what he's implicitly telling us uh, about his opponents as he's trying to dismiss their views. So we need to kind of reverse engineer Ptolemy's text. Uh, what does Ptolemy's dismissal of these alternative views tell us about uh, what those views must have been? For example, uh, Ptolemy tries to argue that if the Earth moved, any loose objects would be thrown off. Like uh, objects placed on a sleeping animal, they would immediately fall off as soon as it woke up and started uh, running about. Uh, but however, from the way Ptolemy presents this argument, it is clear that uh, he by no means thinks that this is self-evident and will be taken for granted by his readers that moving Earth would have such an effect. On the contrary, he addresses counter-arguments to that view that show that his opponents, whoever they were who believed in the Earth's motion, they evidently had a well-articulated theory based on something like inertia, a relativity of motion, some, something quite similar to how we today would explain why a moving Earth does not, in fact, throw things off. Uh, so, it is interesting also that Ptolemy, in fact, acknowledges the multitude of his opponents to all those who believe in the Earth's motion. I reply, blah, blah, blah. That's how he presents uh, this passage. All those. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Evidently, there were lots of people who believed the Earth moved. That's what Ptolemy's own words are saying. 
So really, it's a pity that we don't have any books by all those rebels anymore. And, well, here's another important conclusion we can draw from the above example. These forgotten astronomers, they clearly believe that the heavens should be explained in terms of everyday physics. The Earth is like a rock in a sling, you know, for example, stuff like that. That way of thinking was uh, largely rejected in the Aristotelian tradition, where the heavens are seen as a profoundly different kind of thing altogether than what we encounter here on Earth. The heavens, there's some kind of quasi-divine realm. They're made of some sublime fifth element and so on. That's the basic Aristotelian story. But, but the mathematicians did not care much for that fairy tale, in my opinion. Actually, even the Aristotelian tradition made more concessions to heavenly physics than some people uh, like to admit, I would argue. Uh, the Aristotelian story is that the planets are enclosed in enormous crystalline spherical shells that fill up the entire universe, like the layers of an onion. And the planet itself is just a little speck that is stuck inside uh, this translucent spherical sphere, like a tiny imperfection in hand-blown uh, glass. Uh, why did the, the Aristotelians feel the need for this uh, fiction? Well, what, okay, they didn't believe the vacuum could exist, so maybe that's one reason to fill the heavens with some, some material substance or other. However, I think a more compelling reason was the physics of perpetual motion. Uh, think about it. Uh, what kinds of sustained circular motions are you familiar with from everyday experience? Have you ever seen, for example, a rock just uh, go in a circle over and over again uh, spontaneously without being guided by any other material objects? No, certainly not. That uh, never happens. You have, however, seen many sustained circular motions where the object uh, moving circularly is materially connected to its midpoint. For example, the rock in a sling with the with the string tying the rock to the midpoint or a, a wheel, for instance. Everything is tied to the to the midpoint there as well. Uh, here's another example of the a millstone uh, disc that you use to grind the wheat or something. And once you have this one of these big heavy uh, stone discs, once you so you spin it in order to grind the wheat over there and it, it keeps spinning after you uh, stop applying force because of inertial uh, uh, the inertial tendency to, to rotation. And so a sphere uh, behaves the same way. In fact, you can also use a hollow sphere for to achieve the same effect. Like, for instance, a basketball spinning on your finger is a common experience. Uh, so you set it in motion; it keeps going uh, seemingly forever. If it's if it wasn't for outside resistance uh, holding it back, slowing it down. So the Aristotelian uh, onion universe it fits very well with that physical intuition. The translucent layers of the onion spin on their axis forever, just like the basketball. Uh, and that's why the planets, which are embedded in the sh inside the shells, they go around and around, around the, around the midpoint of the universe. So that's a model of how planetary motions work based on mechanisms that are familiar to everyone from everyday experience. What kinds of circular motions are possible in physical experience? Let us use those uh, kinds of motions to explain the heavens. That seems to be an underlying uh, uh, aim in that type of theorizing. So that's some physics there, even in the conservative Aristotelian view. But let's see how far the uh, more mathematically creative uh, Greeks pushed the idea of physical analysis of the heavens. They certainly went a lot further than this. Uh, first of all, 
it's quite evident that the spherical shape of the Earth can be explained as a consequence of gravitational forces. In fact, uh, Archimedes proves as a theorem in his hydrostatics that a spherical shape is the result of the, or the equilibrium outcome of basic gravitational assumptions. Um, this idea that gravitational forces are the cause of the spherical shape of the Earth is explicitly stated in, in ancient sources. We know for a fact that the Greeks made that connection. But, obviously, other heavenly bodies are round as well, such as the moon, for example. So that very naturally suggests that uh, they have their own gravity, just like the Earth. And this conclusion, too, is explicitly spelled out in ancient sources. So let me quote Plutarch, who says, quote, The downward tendency of falling bodies is evidence not of the Earth's centrality, but of the affinity and cohesion to Earth of those bodies which, when thrust away, fall back again, like rocks and whatnot. And the quote continues, The way in which things here fall upon the Earth suggests how, in all probability, things on the Moon fall upon the Moon and remain there. That's the end of the quote from Plutarch, quite a striking and a modern sentiment that he's expressing. And uh, continuing, and once you start thinking along these lines, it's a short step to the idea that the heavenly bodies pull not only on nearby objects, but also on each other, of course. And once again, this is explicitly spelled out in ancient sources. Seneca, for example, says, quote, If ever these bodies, the heavenly bodies, the planets, if ever these bodies stop, they will fall upon one another. That's the, indeed, he's absolutely right, of course. The planets would fall upon another if there wasn't for their orbital speed. And this point of view explains uh, the motions of the planets in terms of physical forces. So it's not that the planets have circularity of motion as an inherent attribute embedded in their essence, as, as Aristotle would have it. Rather, circularity is a secondary effect. It's the result of the interaction of two primary forces, the tangential force from motion and the radial force from gravity. There are clear indications that uh, Asian astronomers did in fact work out uh, such a theory, including a, a mathematical geometrical treatment. Uh, here, for example, is Vitruvius, uh, quote, The sun's powerful force attracts to itself the planets by means of rays projected in the shape of triangles, as if breaking their forward movement and holding them back, the sun does not allow them to go forth, but forces them to return to it. Uh, exactly, very. That Vitruvius is exactly right. He's expressing, obviously, a heliocentric a theory of planetary motion where planets are drawn toward the, the sun and that is what's causing them to orbit the sun. Absolutely correct. Pliny says the same thing. Planets are prevented by a triangular solar ray from following a straight path. That's a quote from, from him. So, uh, expressing precisely the same idea as Vitruvius. And uh, you may have noticed both of these authors made reference to triangles, in fact. Uh, so, that very strongly suggests that there was an underlying mathematical treatment uh, at the bottom of those uh, those statements, the, the Greeks certainly knew very well, actually, the parallelogram law for the composition of forces or composition of displacements. In fact, they not only stated this law very clearly and explicitly, but even uh, also used it to explain circular motion as the net result of tangential and radial uh, motions. This is all completely explicit in Greek sources. It's beautiful, isn't it, how coherently all of this fits together and how naturally we were led from one idea uh, to the other.
just like uh, the water of the oceans naturally seek a spherical shape, so the spherical shape of the Earth has been formed by the same forces. And just as gravity explains why the Earth is round, so it must explain why other planets are round. And hence they have a gravity of their own. But just as they attract nearby objects, they also attract each other. So the heavens have a perpetual tendency to lump itself up. Uh, except this tendency is counterbalanced by the tendency of speeding objects to shoot off in a straight line. So uh, it's a beautiful uh, uh, coherent belief system. This physical view of the heavens certainly had much to commend it. Clearly, the Greeks uh, were well aware of this. Even though the original works are lost, we are left with only the kinds of scraps that I quoted from the Roman era, so much weaker thinkers, nevertheless expressing uh, sufficient indications for us to, uh, to realize the level of insight that must have been present in the Greek time. Uh, let's take a closer look at one of the earlier lost works in particular, namely that of Aristarchus. Aristarchus was a quality mathematician. Uh, we know for a fact that Aristarchus wrote a treatise advocating the motion of the earth about the sun. And Archimedes, who was a contemporary of Aristarchus, mentions this work uh, basically with uh, tacit approval. So uh, Archimedes, interestingly, he brings this up in connection with a discussion of the size of the universe. Aristarchus' theory implies that the universe must be very big. Uh, this is because uh, para, because a parallax means the following. If you move from one side of a room to another, your view of everything on the walls will change. The wall you are approaching, it will appear to grow, so to speak, while the wall behind you will shrink, that is to say, it will occupy a smaller part of your field of vision. And, well, that's what's called parallax. Now, if the Earth moves in a normal circle around the Sun, we should be at one moment close to some particular constellation of stars, and then half a year later, we should be much further away from them. We are at the other end of our orbit. So we should see these stars sometimes big and up close, so to speak, and sometimes shrunk into a small area, like the faraway wall of, at the end of a long corridor. However, no such effect is observed. Uh, the only way to reconcile this with the motion of the Earth is to stipulate that the stars are so far away that the diameter of the Earth's orbit around the Sun is insignificant by comparison of the distance from us to the stars. So the universe must be very big indeed for that theory to work. And Archimedes points this out. Uh, from this remark, uh, in Archimedes we learn quite a lot. Even though Aristarchus' original theory is lost, we can learn much from it. We learned that uh, Aristarchus' theory was worked out in some detail. It was clearly a serious scientific proposal. It grappled with non-trivial observational theoretical uh, implications in a substantive way, and it evidently did so convincingly. But why else would Archimedes take this theory seriously? I mean, Archimedes is not in this treatise trying to uh, judge one way or the other the way the universe is set, uh, whether the motion of the Earth and so on, it's not the question that he's focused on. He's focused on the question of the size of the universe. But he's mentioning that as saying, well, now that we're investigating the size of the universe, it's important to know that this theory would imply a big universe. And so why would Archimedes bring this up? If it was some crackpot theory, it was, was poorly worked out, if nobody took it seriously, then Archimedes obviously wouldn't bring it up in this connection. And yet he does. So that speaks volume for the credibility of the theory to 
a leading uh, mathematician like Archimedes. Many people, uh, they refuse to accept this, many historians. Actually, there was a paper on Aristarchus in the January 2018 issue of the Archival History of Exact Sciences very recently. According to this paper, and uh, the author says the following, the pre-Copernican heliocentrisms, like that of Aristarchus, had all the disadvantages and none of the advantages of Copernican heliocentrism, because they postulated only that the Earth revolves around the Sun and not, as has commonly been assumed, that the other planets do so as well. And that supposedly explains why Copernicus heliocentrism was accepted and why pre-Copernican heliocentrism was not. So, so why not? Why didn't all the Greeks then convert to Aristarchus's view? Well, in my opinion, that the interpretation of this paper is certainly wrong, for a very obvious reason. Why would Aristarchus have affirmed and written a treatise on heliocentrism if it had nothing but disadvantages? What possible reason could he have done for taking this step? Uh, none, in fact, and yet this is exactly what this recent article proposes happened. Now, it is a fact that Aristarchus asserted the physical reality of his hypothesis, and it is a fact that he recognized the parallax argument against it. Even this recent article that I cited admitted that these are, uh, these are uh, certainly facts. Uh, so... Why then would Aristarchus write a treatise proposing his bold hypothesis, discuss a major argument against it, the parallax argument, and no arguments in favor of it, and then nevertheless conclude that the hypothesis is true? And furthermore, why would Archimedes, perhaps the greatest mathematician of all time, cite this treatise with tacit approval, basically, as a viable description of physical reality? You know, none of that makes any sense. And the only reasonable explanation is that Aristarchus did in fact recognize an advantage of placing the sun in the center of the universe. The obvious guess for what that might have been is, of course, he saw the same advantages as Copernicus did, including, for instance, the more natural explanations of the retrograde motion of outer planets, the bounded deviation from the sun of the inner planets, and so on, like I discussed before in the previous episode. So Aristarchus' treatise on heliocentrism is lost, as I said. However, another astronomical treatise by Aristarchus has survived, fortunately. In this work, Aristarchus calculates the relative distances and sizes of the Sun, the Earth, and the Moon. And this treatise shows that Aristarchus was, well, at any rate, he was a highly competent mathematician, but I think it shows also much more than that, actually. I think it feeds directly into his heliocentrism. An important argument for heliocentrism is this. Smaller bodies orbit bigger ones, not the other way around. This conforms with everyday experience. For instance, you take a lead ball and a ping pong ball and tie them together with a string. Now if you flick the ping pong ball, it will start spinning around the lead ball. However, if you do it the other way around, you flick the lead ball, it will start to roll straight ahead without any regard for the ping-pong ball, which will simply be dragged along uh, behind it. So, the lighter object adapts its motion to the heavier one, but not conversely. So, well, you might object, well, the planets, they're not tied to the sun with a string, you know. But nevertheless, the point uh, generalizes, you can observe the same principle with a big and a small magnet, for instance. The little magnet is moved by the big magnet, and not uh, conversely. Uh, we know that Kepler used this argument in the 17th century, and here's how he puts it, if, uh, I quote him, 
just as Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus and Mercury are all smaller bodies than the solar body around which they revolve, so the moon is smaller than the Earth, and so the four moons of Jupiter are smaller than the body of Jupiter itself, around which they revolve. But if the sun moves, the sun, which is the greatest, will revolve around the Earth, which is smaller. Therefore, it is more believable that the Earth, a small body, should revolve around the greater body of the sun. That's the end of Kepler's quote. Oh, so, okay, the moons of Jupiter, they were not known in antiquity. But other than that, it, what Kepler is expressing is a very basic idea. It fits very well with the Greek at extensive attention to the physics of the heavens that we have already outlined. And surely this must have occurred to Aristarchus. Are we supposed to believe that Aristarchus calculated the sizes of heavenly bodies just for kicks in one treatise, in the surviving treatise, and somehow failed to see any connection with the heliocentrism that he advanced in another treatise, even though this obvious argument based on the sizes of the bodies was right under his nose. What's the probability that he suffered from such uh, schizophrenia? Virtually zero, in my opinion. In fact, there are certain aspects of Aristarchus' treatise on, on the sizes and distances that make much more sense when you read it in this way. So, on its own, it's a kind of a weird treatise, on the one hand, it calculates with it calculates the sizes and distances of the sun, moon, and the earth in a mathematically sophisticated manner. It's very detailed technical stuff. It includes, for example, the completely pointless complication that the sun does not quite illuminate half uh, the moon, as you might. That would be a convenient uh, mathematical simplification to use. But technically speaking, it only illuminates, I don't know, 49.9% of the surface of the moon or something like that. You know, so there's, the, the distinction is so ridiculously small. It is uh, pure mathematical pedantry to draw that distinction, as Neubauer has put it. It makes the geometrical calculations ten times more intricate, while having only the most minuscule and completely insignificant uh, impact on the final results. And yet, that's Aristarchus uh, insists on doing that. On the other hand, uh, the observational data that Aristarchus uses for his calculations are extremely crude. He says that uh, the angular distance between the sun and the moon at half moon is 87 degrees. That's a pretty terrible value. The real value is more like 89.9 degrees. And because of this lousy observational input, his results are way off. For instance, his calculated distance to the sun is off by a factor of, of 20 or something like that. So what's going on? Why do such intricate mathematics to such worthless data? So did he just care about mathematical ideas and not uh, about actual numbers? Uh, he just put the numbers in there just to show the principle somehow? I think it would be a mistake to jump to that simplistic conclusion, even though many people have done so. Actually... It's easy to see that how Aristarchus had actually a, a meaningful purpose in underestimating this angle, making it 87 instead of 89.9. His purpose with this treatise, as I propose, is to support his heliocentric cosmology, you know, based on the principle that smaller bodies should orbit bigger bodies and not conversely. But this hypothesis fits very well with the structure of Aristarchus' treatise. The treatise has 18 propositions. Proposition 16 says that the Sun has a volume which is about 300 times greater than uh, that of the Earth. Proposition 18, the very last proposition, says that the Earth has a volume that is about 20 times greater than that of the Moon. These are, of course, exactly the propositions you need 
to explain which body should orbit which. The Earth should orbit the Sun, the Moon should orbit the Earth. And that is exactly where Aristarchus chooses to end his treatise. Many commentators have been puzzled by this, by why Aristarchus ends in this strange place. Uh, they have been baffled by why does he not give actually the distances and sizes in terms of Earth radii. So you can use the Earth radius as a universal unit, so to speak, in terms of which to express all the other uh, quantities that you're talking about. That seems like the obvious and natural thing to do. And actually, it would have been very easy for Aristarchus to, to do that. Many modern commentators, they add these small extra steps that you could just, uh, one or two propositions more, just tie this, this reasoning up, fill in this obvious gap, and you have everything expressed in terms of Earth radii. Except from my point of view, of course, it's not a gap at all, and there's no need to be puzzled by Aristarchus' choices. If we accept my hypothesis, then everything he does makes perfect sense. All of a sudden, he carries his calculations precisely as far as he needs for his purpose, and no further. My hypothesis also explains why Aristarchus chose such a poor value for the angular measurements. He has every reason to purposefully use a value that is much too small, underestimating the angle that I was talking about, the 87 degrees, underestimating that means that the size of the sun will be underestimated as well as a consequence. And of course his goal is to show that the sun is much bigger than the earth. So he has shown that even if we grossly underestimate the angle, uh, the sun is still much bigger than the earth. So he has considered the, the worst case scenario for his desired conclusion, and he still comes out on top. So that just makes his case uh, all the stronger, of course. So now here's a possible objection to my interpretation. Obviously, my interpretation it requires that Aristarchus knew that 87 degrees was an underestimate. The standard view in the literature is that he could not have known this. Aristarchus' numerical data are nothing but arithmetically convenient parameters chosen without consideration for observational facts. This is a quote from Neugebauer, a leading authority on this matter, who, who continues, i quoting him uh, again here, it is obvious that Aristarchus' fundamental idea is totally impracticable. 87 degrees is a purely fictitious number. The actual value must have eluded direct determination by methods available to agents of service. End of that quote. Uh, so Neugebauer's uh, proof of this is as follows. Okay, so you're trying to measure the angle between the sun and the moon at half-moon. Now, to do that, you need to pinpoint the precise moment of half-moon, but you can only do this with an accuracy of maybe half a day. But in half a day, the moon moves six degrees, and therefore it radically changes this angle you're trying to measure because it moves so much quicker than the, the precision at which you can pinpoint the moment of half moon. So the observational value is going to have a margin of error of six degrees, which is enormous, and it makes the whole thing completely pointless. The margin of error is much too big for the observation to have any meaning at all, really. That's Neugebauer's opinion. I'm not convinced that it's as hopeless as all that, really. One way to work around this problem would be to use not one single observation, but the average of many observations. Well, this is an idea that uh, we know uh, much later it has become a standard practice in science. There's little evidence that the Greeks used averaging in this way. But the idea is simple enough, and they very well could have. I did a bit of statistics to see if this would be viable. 
Let's assume that the angular measurements are uh, normally distributed, about the true value, of course. Neugebauer, he's, he claimed then that one would be lucky to get the moment of half-moon correct to the day. So in other words, we will be able to tell that the half-moon occurs, let's say, today rather than yesterday. But we couldn't tell at what exact hour uh, the moon is exactly half-full during the, this evening. So we can roughly translate this in statistical terms by saying that the observations have a standard deviation of 12 hours or 6 degrees. So, well, an astronomer active for, let's say, two decades would have occasion to observe about 500 half-moons. So, okay, let's say he makes 500 angular measurements and then he averages them. That would produce an estimate of the true value with a 95% confidence intervals of plus minus about half a degree, according to my calculations. Now, well, a margin of error of half a degree, that is easily enough to support my interpretation that 87 is a conscious uh, underestimate. So, obviously, in Aristarchus will not have reasoned in these terms exactly with the standard deviation and blah, blah, blah. Nevertheless, it's not necessary to know statistical theory to get an intuitive sense of this, the order of magnitude involved in this estimate. Obviously, as you keep adding observations, you keep averaging them, you're going to see that the average value is uh, stabilizing over time, obviously. So certainly it will become clear after a while that whatever the true value is, it will be greater than 87 degrees at any rate. That's uh, Once you have taken hundreds of these measurements, that will become very plausible. Uh, so, okay, I admit that it is certainly very speculative to imagine that Aristarchus might have done uh, something like this. Nevertheless, my argument shows at any rate that it cannot be ruled out as out of the question that Aristarchus could, in principle, have had solid empirical evidence that his value of 87 degrees was certainly an underestimate. So, in conclusion, Aristarchus was a good mathematician. He proposed a heliocentric theory that was taken very seriously by Archimedes. There was a long tradition in Greek thought of trying to account for the motions of the planets in terms of everyday physics. This is naturally connected to the idea of heliocentrism because of the natural idea that smaller bodies should orbit bigger ones. Aristarchus, in fact, wrote a major treatise devoted specifically to comparing the sizes of the Sun and the Earth and the Earth and the Moon. And several otherwise uh, peculiar aspects of this treatise fit like a glove with the idea that it was written precisely to lend credibility to heliocentrism. More generally, I hope to have shown that non-Ptolemaic Greek astronomy was fascinating. It was full of interesting and correct ideas. Nowadays we are stuck with Ptolemy as the canonical source for Greek astronomy. But Ptolemy lived hundreds of years after the golden age of Greek science, people like Archimedes and Aristarchus. It's very likely that Ptolemy was not the pinnacle of Greek astronomy at all, but rather a regressive a later author who perhaps took astronomy backwards more than anything else. Well, let's keep that in mind as we turn to uh, Galileo's dialogue next, in which uh, Ptolemy is the designated uh, punching bag, the symbol of stale received wisdom. But more on that next time. Thank you.